Father, we do want to lean only on you. Man, every time we turn on TV, every time we click on Facebook, every time we uh, listen to the radio, anytime we pick up a, a newspaper, there's just so much that is depressing and gloomy and confusing and downright discouraging. But you've said, don't let that sway us. Don't let that frighten us. Don't let that pull us down. Instead, we need to put you on the throne of our lives and recognize that you are absolute sovereign Lord, that you are absolutely in control, that nothing, nothing in this world can touch us because your hand of protection is upon us as your children. Yes, we go through difficult times. Yes, there will be trouble in our life. And yet you are Lord even above all the discouragement, all the troubles. And so we just rest in, in you and in you alone. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, let's jump into to God's word together. So who do you think you are anyway? Has anybody ever said that to you? Who do you think you are? And, uh, you know, you might say, well, you know, I'm a minor, or I'm a teacher, or uh, I'm a student, or I'm a nurse, or I'm a lawyer, or I'm a bookkeeper. Uh, how do you respond to that? You know, we often identify ourselves by what we do. So who do you think you are? Who are you? And I might say, well, I'm a preacher, but that's not my identity. See, we, don't identi we often identify ourselves by what we do, but that's not who we really are. You see, as Christians in Jesus Christ, we are something different. We're not identified by what we do. You know, a person might say, well, you know what, uh, I'm an addict. Or they might say, hey, I'm no good, or uh, I can't do anything right, or I'm, I'm worthless, or I'm unemployed, I'm divorced, I'm uh, single, I'm ugly, I'm fat. Uh, those are the ways in which we identify ourselves so many times, whether it's positive, whether it's negative, whether it's kind of neutral. But in reality, those statements really do not define who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. God's Word makes it very plain that in Christ Jesus, we're something entirely different. And so over the next three weeks, I'm going to be talking to us about what is our identity in Christ? What does God's Word have to say about who we are? You know, in the Old Testament, God made the declaration that I am in the New Testament, Jesus came and he gave some of those I am statements. He said, I am the door. I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am uh, the living water. I am the bread of life. Well, what I want us to look at is some statements from the New Testament about I am that pertains to us. Who are we according to the New Testament? So this, this series is going to look at some of those great I am statements of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. I am forgiven. I am 
righteous in Jesus Christ. I am accepted by God. I am completely loved. I am chosen. I am adopted as a child of God. I am transformed. I am victorious in Christ. And the basis for this entire series is, is taken from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 and verse 17. And this is a truth. This statement, this verse, really gives to us a truth that is absolutely essential. Something that we must never, ever forget. I mean, this is a truth that we need to camp on for our lives. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Folks, that is foundational for all the truths that, that, uh, that we learn in that, in, you know, when we talk about our identity in Jesus Christ. In fact, the New Testament uses two words to really talk about who we are as believers. And it's the simple words, in Christ. In Christ. That's our identity. We are in Christ. And folks, that is a phrase that is repeated over and over in the New Testament, that we are in Christ. Uh, in fact, the Apostle Paul uses that phrase or its equivalent 160 different times in his New Testament writings. In Christ, that's our true identity. And because of that, we're completely free to be all that God created us and redeemed us to be. Um, you know, when we trusted Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of our lives, God placed us in Christ. And so we're in a, in a vital life-giving union with Christ. He lives in us and he's living through us. That is one of the most important truths for any follower of Jesus Christ, that we are in Christ. Would you say that aloud to, with me, that I am in Christ? Say that with me. I am in Christ. Now you can do better than that. Come on. I am in Christ. And say it with me also. Christ is within me. Christ is within me. Those are some truths that you need to hold on to. What is your identity? I am in Christ. Christ is in me. Let me give you just a handful of thoughts from the writings of Paul the Apostle concerning being in Christ. He uses that phrase over and over and over again. <clears throat> For instance, he says that we are redeemed and justified in Christ. That is, we've been bought back from slavery to sin. We have been justified. We've been declared not guilty, and it's all in Christ. He talks about that we're alive to God in Christ, that we stand not condemned in Christ. We are one body in Christ. We've been sanctified or made holy in Christ. We're a new creation in Him. We become the righteousness of God in Him. Uh, we possess liberty in Christ. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. We are chosen in Jesus Christ. We're predestined to adoption as the sons of God in Christ. Grace has been bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins in him. In him we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We've been seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are complete in Christ. Those statements are just some of the facts about what it means 
to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I, I think, folks, it is absolutely crucial that we hold on to those kinds of ideas, those kinds of facts about who we are in Jesus Christ. Because, you see, there is a lot of whispering of lies to us that would tell us that we're something different. There are somebody out there, there's people out there all the time who are whispering to us lies about who we really are. And so when we ask the question, what's our identity in Jesus Christ? We need to hold on to the truth that I am in Christ. Christ is in me. I belong to him. Satan is called the accuser in the New Testament. And that's one of the things that he does. He accuses us before God. You remember the story of Job. <clears throat> and Satan came to, to God and, and God says, hey, Satan, have you considered my man Job, a righteous man? And, and what did Job said? He said, Job would curse you to your face if you would take away his wealth and take away his family and take away his health. He does that for us. Satan accuses us before God to just tell God he's no good. Look at him. Look at her. Look at the way she acts. She's no good. Here's the good news. God doesn't listen to Satan. God instead listens to his son, Jesus Christ, who is interceding on our behalf. Another thing, because Satan then fails in his accusation before God. In other words, he can't get God to turn against us. So he does the very next best thing. He whispers in our ears any number of lies to rob us of our identity in Jesus Christ. He'll come to us and say, hey, you're worthless. You're just a bad person. You'll never achieve victory here. You'll never be able to overcome this addiction. You'll never be able to, to win that person's approval. When he, you know, God is mad at you. Uh, he really doesn't love you because of what you're doing. Satan is always whispering in our ears, telling us lies about who we are. And then we whisper to ourselves, my goodness, we talk to ourselves with such negativity. We say, God could never forgive me for what I've done. Uh, I will never be good enough for God to love me. I, I'm not sure that, that uh, I'm good enough for God to love me. Uh, I'm dirt. You know, I have no value at all. I'm worthless. You know, I, we, we talk to ourselves all the time. You know, I, I'm trying to follow God, but I don't guess I'm good enough. Or, you know what, I'm not going to know until the last day whether I'm going to make it to heaven or not. We tell ourselves lies continually. You know, I'm an addict. I can never change. I can never break this, this habit in my life. I'm always going to be this way. It's who I am. Those are some of the lies that we tell ourselves or that Satan tells to us. If you and I are going to fight these lies that are given to us by Satan, that are given to us by our own selves, we need to fully understand who we are in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and then we need to learn to begin to live out these truths in our, in our daily life. So let's start by again asking the question, who am I in Jesus Christ? And I want to look today at two really tremendous truths. Uh, really that come out of the, the, the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. The first one is simply this, I am forgiven. Who are you? I am forgiven. Um, 
You know, if there's one whispered lie that Satan loves to sing into our ears, it's that lie of guilt for the wrong that we have done. And if that isn't enough, that's a lie that we whisper to ourselves, that we should feel guilty about something. You know, medical research tells us that uh, one of the leading causes of illness in America is unresolved guilt. We feel guilty in at least all sorts of physical ramifications in our life. We can't seem to get rid of the guilty feelings in our everyday life. And you know what I'm talking about. You know, it's that pain in the pit of your stomach when you're reminded of something that you, maybe you just did or something you did years ago and you just you, you feel guilty about it. Um, and if you don't deal with guilt, folks, it's going to eat your lunch. What is really tragic is when Christians deal with guilt that they have no business of dealing with. Because that has been something that was forgiven by God through Jesus Christ years and years ago. The past is the past, and you and I need to learn to understand when God forgives, He forgives. And you and I need to hold on to that. So, so let's go, um, let's talk for a moment about the fact that you and I need to learn to let go of the guilt in our life because God has placed you in Christ. And when he placed you in Christ, when you trusted in him, when God placed you in Christ, he forgave your past. He forgave your present. He forgives your future. That's something you and I need to hold on to. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 7. It says that God is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. That, that little phrase there, forgave our sins, it's in past tense. And it speaks of completed action. It's an, an accomplished fact that all of our sins, past, present, future, have been forgiven. And that word forgiven in the Greek language is a noun that means dismissal. Uh, it, it means a release. The verb form means to send away, to send it away from us. And so it means really the remission of sins or really the canceling of the debt that we owed for the wrong things that we've done. That our debt has been canceled. Now, how was that, that canceling of the debt accomplished? Look at Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14. <clears throat> God's Word tells us this. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. And then look at verse 14. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Somehow you and I get this picture that throughout life, we keep accumulating these charges and that God has got some kind of ledger that he's keeping on our lives. And one day we're going to stand before God and God is going to say, do you remember when you did this? You remember when you had this attitude? You remember when you did that? And, and he's going to nail us for all the wrong that we've done. Look what it says here. He took those charges and he nailed them to the cross. He canceled the record of the charges against us. There's no charge on God's side. 
when you think about it, <laughs> this verse really deals with the whole spectrum of what salvation is about. <laughs> it talks about regeneration, that we've been made spiritually alive in Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. And then again in verse 14, the charges against us have all been canceled. The wrongs of our life have all been forgiven. And how complete is that forgiveness? Look what the psalmist said in Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Another verse in the Old Testament talks about the fact that he has placed our iniquity at the bottom of the ocean and he remembers it no more. See, the penalty for, for, the, for our sins, the wrong that stood between us and God, has been permanently removed. Hebrews 10, 14, For by that one offering, he, meaning Jesus, forever, underline that word, forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Folks, God has forgiven us. There is no charge of offenses against us anymore in Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> let's be real clear. What is the basis of his forgiveness? I mean, we say God has forgiven us. What's the basis of that forgiveness? Well, it's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the basis of our forgiveness. The cross is, it does everything for us. The cross of Jesus Christ is the basis for our forgiveness. Look again at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Sometimes we have this crazy idea that we're forgiven because we're sincere or because we're sorry or, or even, well, I've asked God to forgive us, therefore he's forgiven me. That is not the basis of the forgiveness that God gives to us. The truth is that our forgiveness is not based on anything that we do. It's based on what God has done. And we trample underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ if we think that God forgives us because we ask Him to or because we're, we've shed a lot of tears over our sins or we're doing penance or we went to confession or something like that, that based on all those things, God's going to forgive us. No, the basis of our forgiveness is the fact that Jesus Christ died for us. That's the only reason he forgives us. If it wasn't for the blood of Jesus Christ, if it wasn't for the cross of Jesus Christ, there would be no forgiveness. You and I need to hold on to that. The only explanation of the forgiveness of God and of the unfathomable death of his, uh, depth of his forgiving and forgetting our sins is the death of Jesus Christ. See, our repentance is merely our outward acknowledgement of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's our realization of the atonement that Christ has won for us. So, <clears throat> folks, it doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what we are. The only way that we're put into a right relationship with God, a forgiving relationship with God, is by the death of Jesus Christ and by no other means. It's not earned. It's not merited. 
Not because we plead or we shed tears or we do any kind of penance or anything like that. The only reason that God forgives us is because Jesus Christ died for us. Paul said this, we have redemption through his blood. And the writer of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness of sin. Second aspect of our forgiveness is simply this. Confession then and repentance are keys to living victoriously in fellowship with God. They're keys to living victoriously uh, in fellowship with God, confession and repentance. I mean, here's a part of our identity in Christ. We have been forgiven by God for all of our wrongdoings, all of our disobedience, all of our sins. Now we need to be living as forgiven people. And a part of living as forgiven people is daily confession and repentance, uh, <clears throat> really appropriating in our lives the cleansing power of God in our lives. Let me, let me kind of explain it this way. Let's suppose that you have a brother who has offended you very severely. In fact, there are legal consequences for what he did. He ought to go to prison for what he did to you. Uh, there are legal ramifications. It's serious business, whatever he did to you. But let's suppose, maybe for a reason that's known only to you, that you forgive him and you have the charges dropped against him. So judicially, he is now free. He is now, he's, he's, he's been forgiven. So no longer are there legal consequences. But the, the relationship between the two of you still can be troubled. Uh, you know, the relationship between the two of you is now clear of all legal obstacles, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to have problems with him in the future. And those problems can put a strain on your relationship with your brother, but they don't jeopardize his legal standing. You know, judicial forgiveness does not remove the need for relational forgiveness. So legally, he has been forgiven. But sometimes in the relationship, there's a need for, for further forgiveness. Now, <clears throat> that's not a perfect analogy. But maybe it'll help us to understand that by God's grace, we have been recipients of judicial forgiveness. That is, God has declared us not guilty. And he has forgiven the legal penalty of sin by taking that sin and, and attaching it to the cross of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins. And so in Christ, we have a perfect standing before God. And, and now we're a part of his forever family. And nothing will ever take that away from us, okay? Nothing will ever change that relationship. You know, many of us experience problems or difficulties sometimes with family members, you know, whether it's a sister or a son or a daughter or, or a, you know, a parent or whatever, that relationship can be strained. Hard feelings can exist, but that doesn't mean that you suddenly stop being a part of the family, you know, and in families, there, there's got to come a time sometimes when forgiveness has to be given. A healthy family relationship really requires consistently extending and, and receiving forgiveness. 
Well, the same principle applies in our relationship with God, our Heavenly Father. You know, as a judge, God has pardoned us once for all when we trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But the fact of the matter is, folks, that we mess up from time to time. Even though we've trusted in Jesus Christ and and seeking to live for Him, we still sin from time to time. I mean, that's reality. And you know what? That impacts our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so there's a need for what I would call relational forgiveness, not not judicial forgiveness, but relational forgiveness. Look at this passage in 1 John 1 verse 9 from the, the, the King James Version of the Bible. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, the fact is that all of us, believers and and non-believers for that matter, we blow it and we disobey God from time to time in our life. And that's called sin. And God never ignores sin. However, he does forgive sin. But when we deny sin on our part, it always produces distance. There's always a a distancing that that takes place there. And so for me not to admit the sin in my life, you know, the things that maybe I did today that didn't please God, that's going to create distance between me and God. Uh, It's going to create a strain on the relationship that I have with God. He creates distance in that relationship. But I'm still in the family, Okay, I I can be in the family, but I can sort of be out of harmony with God if I persist in refusing to deal with the the wrong things that I've done in my life. The things that, you know, that God patiently and persistently reveals to me through the Holy Spirit, things that really are out of step with the family values that I should be showing in my life. Well, the way to deal with those wrongs is through confession. And, and John said, if we confess our sin. Now, I know you've heard this a hundred times, but again, just a reminder that the Greek word for, conve- for confess means literally to say the same thing as. It, it, it means to agree with. In other words, I come to God and say, God, you have said that these things in my life are wrong, and I agree with you. These things that I'm doing are wrong. They don't need to be a part of my life. You're right, God. I'm wrong. That's what it means to confess. But implicit in the idea of confession is also the aspect of repentance, which literally means to change the mind, which means, you know, to go in a different direction. I say, God, what you say about my life is true. I am wrong. And so instead of going in the wrong direction, I turn and I go in the right direction. That's what repentance is. I turn around and go in the direction that God wants me to go in. So there's confession, agreeing with God, repentance, turning and going in the direction that God wants us to go. And those things are essential if we're going to maintain a healthy relationship with our Heavenly Father. When we sin, it doesn't take us out of the family but it sure brings strain in the relationships within the family. That's where confession, where repentance come in. But when we do confess, when we do repent, look at what, what John tells us, what God does. It says, he is faithful and he's just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. <clears throat> when I was in college, in my uh, between my sophomore and my junior year, uh, the summer between my sophomore and junior year at Baylor University, uh, I served as a summer youth director at a church in Georgetown, uh, Texas. And during that summer experience, I wrecked my car. I rolled my car. It was it's a bad deal, okay? And so my dad made arrangements. And, it, you know, my parents were living in Albuquerque, and I was off in Central Texas. And uh, so he arranged with a dealership there in Georgetown to buy me a new car. I went and picked it out, and he had his bank wire the money to them, and I got this brand-new car. You know and how new cars are. Man, they're shiny. They're beautiful. You're so proud of them. What I found out, though, was as you drove through the streets and the roads of central Texas and sometimes the dirt roads of uh, the country roads of Texas, the car gets dirty. I mean, one time I got it, I was gone fishing and I tried to cut through a field and got bogged down in mud and had to have the car towed out. What I learned was that I could take it and I could wash it. And after I washed it, it was shiny like a brand new vehicle. Well, that's what confession does. <clears throat> it allows us to shine up the relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. You've been given a new life in Jesus Christ. He's declared you not guilty. You're forgiven. Past, present, future. But you know what? The daily grind of work, the, the family and recreation and entertainment, that leads to getting the muck of sin and all the poor choices we make in life just kind of muck up our, our relationship with God. And we have a need to come to God and, and let Him cleanse us. I mean, that's a part of our daily routine. Um, my daughter, Karen, is always going to be my daughter. We have that family relationship. I love her so much. But I will tell you this. I am not going to let my daughter go out and wallow in the mud and then come into the dining table and eat with muddy hands and muddy clothes. I, that's not going to happen at my table, okay? Well, the same is true when we come to God's table of fellowship, you know, we don't, we need to get clean before we come to God in fellowship. For us to have the very best fellowship with God, we've got to get rid of the muck in our life. And that's what confession does. That's what repentance does. <clears throat> the very best intimacy with our Father comes when we make sure that we're clean through confession and, and repentance. And so <clears throat> our part is daily confession, daily repentance. His part is the forgiveness and the cleaning. And folks, that needs to be something you do every single day. Maybe before you go to bed at night, just say, God, would you through your Holy Spirit kind of show me, where did I stray away from you today? Where did I disappoint you? Where did I disobey you? I confess tomorrow's going to be a better day. I'm going to go in a different direction. That needs to be a part of what... It, what we ought to do every day. And so the first thing, when somebody says, who are you? I am forgiven. Second thing, I am declared righteous before God. Righteous before God. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. God has united you with Christ Jesus 
For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. And then Romans 3, 25 and 26. For God presented Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. And then the last part of verse 26. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. <laughs> so we're declared to be right in God's sight through our faith, through our trust, uh, through our belief in Jesus Christ. And that's a fact that we need to fully comprehend. God has paid the full penalty on the cross for our sin. He took the full punishment that should have been ours, and, 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 and it was all put on him so that we could have forgiveness and be forgiven forever. And um, so that wouldn't be held against us on Judgment Day. Because of that, we can now rejoice that God the Father says this about us. We are now the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? We are now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Man, what a tremendous thought that is. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, and he's talking about Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Folks, that is not a small insignificant fact. Uh, let the truth of that verse sink in. I mean, this is huge. He made Jesus to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What the truth there is, is that there was a point in time when you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ who lived and who died and who rose again on your behalf, there came a part when uh, came a time when God declared you to be legally holy and as righteous as you possibly will ever be. God said, "You're holy. You're righteous." As much as you're ever going to be, folks, that is what we would call positional truth. That is a truth of our position in Jesus Christ. And so we are right with God in this very minute because of what Jesus Christ has done. The moment that we accept Christ as Lord and Savior, uh, we're given God's covering, His robe of righteousness. Um, that's, that is such a tremendous truth, folks. It's God's righteousness, and it's given to us free of charge. Uh, there's nothing that we have to do ourselves to merit it, to earn it. There's not any degree of work that we can do to merit that kind of righteousness, um, to make us acceptable unto God on, on Judgment Day, that will qualify us as a person who can, can live in His presence forever. Simply stated, folks, none of us, there isn't a person alive or has ever been alive who can be good enough to be declared fully right with the Father and, and pronounced not guilty in God's sight by our own efforts. That's not going to happen, okay? It's impossibility. So let me say it again, but let me put it in a little different way. 
The only way that God will allow anyone to remain with him in heaven for all of eternity is for that person to be as holy and as righteous as God is. Let me say that again. The only way that God will allow anybody to remain in heaven for eternity is for that person to be as holy and as righteous as God himself is. But you know what? God knew that that was an impossibility. That wasn't going to happen, okay? Because no person is capable of being that holy and that righteous on their own, okay? There was only one way for a person to be that holy and that righteous, and that is that God came to this earth. He lived a sinless life, went through every temptation that you and I have gone through, but lived a sinless life, and he died as the perfect sacrifice for our, for our sin. And when he did that, God says, those who accept him, who believe in him, who trust in him, I will give his righteousness to them. So here's the fact, you know, Jesus paid the price to give to us his righteousness. So the, the death of Jesus Christ, folks, is the only way that we can be put right with God. And it became the, the way in which we legally could become the righteous of Jesus Christ. Listen to this, and I want you to, to hear me say this. Even though we are forgiven, we can never dwell in God's presence because we're not holy enough. Therefore, God not only has forgiven us, but he also gave us the righteousness that we need to be able to in his presence for all of eternity. If all we had was forgiveness, we're still cooked. Because God's not going to let that which is unrighteous or unholy into heaven. So when Jesus Christ died, not only did he forgive us, but he gave us his very righteousness. And so when we stand before God now, we stand in his righteousness. When God looks at us, you know what he sees? He sees Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone. You see why this is such a big deal? Um, you know, through the death of Jesus Christ, we are given the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> this not only is a qualifying fact so that we can be with holy God for all of eternity, but it's also a crucial part of our identity. Who am I? I am one who's clothed, who's clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. So is that something we ought to rejoice over? Yeah, you bet it is, you know. Now, I'm going to repeat something, you know, that I talked about when we were looking at, at the minor prophet of Zechariah. Um, but, you know, repetition is a good teaching tool, okay? You heard the story of the young preacher who had just been called to the church. and Everybody was excited. They got a new preacher in, and, and he got up, and he preached a sermon. And it was a good sermon. And all the people said, oh, pastor, that was a wonderful sermon. We're so glad you're here. Next Sunday, he got up, and he preached the very same sermon. People kind of looked at one another and said, what's that all about? The third Sunday, guess what? He preached the same sermon. So the deacons got together and they went to the preacher and said, Preacher, we really loved your sermon. But is that the only one you got? I mean, you, you preached it three Sundays in a row. The young preacher looked at him and he said, Well, when you start doing what I'm asking for, then I'll preach another sermon. So sometimes we need to hear something again, okay? Because we need to learn the truth of it. 
here's, here again is Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. So let me ask you, what are you attempting to wear when you stand before God? Is it your own efforts, your own attempt to be righteous before God? Again, what does the Old Testament say? Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Uh, do you think when you stand before God in filthy rags that he's going to be pleased with you? That, uh, you know, he's going to be satisfied? Absolutely not. The only thing acceptable before holy God is holiness and righteousness. And that holiness and righteousness is not something that you and I can do. We can't do that for ourselves. It's not something we can acquire on our own. Look at what Paul said again in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. <clears throat> he says, I want to know Christ fully. And he says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That, my friends, is the only way to be right with God. Faith in Jesus Christ, his son, whereby God takes our sins, our unrighteousness, and he lays them on Jesus Christ, and he takes Jesus Christ's righteousness, and he clothes us in that righteousness. Now we can stand before God, robed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, so that when God sees us, he sees not our sins, not our filthy rags, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what he's done for us in Christ. That's why this term is so essential, that we are in Christ, what God has done for us in Christ. <clears throat> the key word for all of this is that great theological word, justification. Justification means that God has acquitted us. He's pronounced us not guilty. Justification is the divine judicial act of God based on the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, whereby a sinner is pronounced righteous because he's been given the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Simply put, God has declared us not guilty, and he has forgiven every wrong that we've ever committed or will ever commit because of Jesus Christ. Look at your notes there, or those uh, there on the screen. Here's a verse I want to challenge you to memorize this week. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you're in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. God doesn't condemn you. Why would you allow Satan to condemn you? Why would you allow yourself to condemn you? Speaking negative words all the time. I'm no good. I'm a bum. Who are you in Christ you're forgiven and you're righteous. Stand in that position of being in Christ. Would you say with me this phrase here, the next phrase here on the screen? Let's say this together. Because I am in Christ, I am forgiven and I'm clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus. Do you believe that? I hope so. Because that's who you are. That's your identity in Christ. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for who we are in you. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for righteousness. May we learn to live as real children of God, rejoicing in who you've made us to be in Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.